0: This week, ready-to-use chemical capsules could make chemists' lives a lot easier.
1: You have a jar of said capsules filled with whatever reagents that were previously sensitive, just you know, now they're on the benchtop. you can remove them and add them to your reaction mixture at will.
2: And plant scientists asked to open their inboxes to anti-GM activists.
3: The response was pretty hot and heavy. I think people are passionate and polarised about GM technology. This
0: is The Nature Podcast for August 13, 2015. I'm Adam Levy.
3: And I'm
2: Kerry Smith. It's a shorter show than usual this week as we reach the height of summer, but I'm sure many scientists are still slaving away in the lab. A new report this week strives to make lab life, for chemists at least, a little bit easier. Jeff Marsh has been to a lab in London to find out more.
4: Some of the more useful reactions that chemists perform these days require catalysts that are sensitive to the different components of the air, like water and oxygen, for example. This means that chemists have to do these reactions in an unreactive atmosphere. And to do that, you've got to use something called a glove box. It's called that because it's basically a giant cabinet filled with an unreactive gas like nitrogen, which you stick your arms in through a set of long, rubbery gloves from the outside. Not every chemistry department has a glove box, and even if you do have access to one, they're not without their difficulties. Aaron Sathers at MIT and his colleagues have just published a paper this week in Nature detailing a new idea about how to work with these sensitive chemicals. Before I spoke to Aaron about his team's new innovation, I went to a noisy chemistry lab at Imperial College in London to see a glove box in action. So I'm now in the Andrew Ashley lab at Imperial College and I'm stood beside PhD student Daniel Scott. Uh, He's a chemist here and... We're both stood beside this glove box. It looks like a glass cabinet with three black rubber inflatable arms sticking out and almost, almost tickling Daniel. And he's getting into the box, and that involves putting his fingers in the fingers of the inflatable hands. And wow, his whole arm has just gone inside the box, and the left arm. And inside this cabinet, we've just got shelves and shelves of bottles and different contraptions. And this is where the the magic happens.
5: Yeah. So I mean, it's basically it almost everything that's stored in here is something that because it is sensitive to air or sensitive to moisture we couldn't really store outside the glove box so it's something we need to maintain uh, under an atmosphere of of nitrogen. What are you working on and why is that in a glove box? So I'm working on a form of metal free catalysis and the short answer is that the catalysts I use uh, are quite sensitive to moisture so we have to store them in a a moisture free environment and and for us that's most practical to do in a glove box.
4: How do you feel about it? Is it tedious
5: or what do you do when your phone rings? Uh, Ignore it normally. It's one of those things where if you use a glove box every day, it becomes sort of second nature. It's like everything else. But I remember back from when I just started, and whenever we get a new student, so a Masters student or or a BSc student, I'm always reminded of just how awkward it can be when you're starting out. Um, These aren't the the thinnest gloves in the world, um, and that makes sort of very precise control really quite awkward, especially again if if you're not uh, familiar with what you're doing.
4: And I suppose another problem is, uh, could you just pass me that bottle there in the top right hand corner? No, I'm afraid. Looks a bit fiddly. Why, why do you, as a chemist, use this glove box? What sort of chemistry are you doing that requires this
5: inert atmosphere? So, in general, it, it's anyone doing chemistry that uses compounds that are, are too reactive to store on the open bench. So normally that means they're either sensitive to oxidation from oxygen in the air or they're sensitive towards moisture in the air. Uh, and so it's that latter that's particularly of a concern for the chemistry I do. I left Daniel's shoulder deep in his glove box to call
4: Aaron Sathers at MIT, who's been developing a glove box alternative. Rather than working with your reactive chemicals in these glove boxes, they've developed a technique to package them in little capsules, which can then be worked with on the lab bench.
1: We just have a beaker of molten paraffin wax. Then we take a glass rod and dip it in several times to develop a coating on the rod. Then uh, once it's cool. You kind of remove the coating from the glass stir rod, and now you have this open-ended capsule. Then we made a bunch of these. You could fill them with the reagents and everything you need. Uh, we can seal them up, and now you have all the reagents and catalysts you need inside the capsule. And now they can just be added as like a single-use type situation where you have a jar of said capsules filled with whatever reagents that were previously sensitive. Just, you know, now they're on the bench top. You can remove them and add them to your reaction mixture at will.
4: Isn't your reaction mixture then filled with paraffin wax? It is. And is that a problem?
1: It is not. That's one of the reasons we went for paraffin in the first place. We wanted to have something to stabilize the reagents and catalysts that was going to be non-reactive, and, and paraffin was the perfect choice. So no no reactive um, components on it.
4: I mean, on the face of it, this this innovation of encapsulating sensitive reagents for chemistry, it seems like a no-brainer. I mean, are you surprised that this problem hasn't been tackled before?
1: Yes. I actually talked to my, some of my colleagues about it too, and they—they they, every time I mention it to them, they're like, ah, oh, I can't believe someone hasn't done that.
4: And how long did they last? Did they eventually react?
1: I guess it just depended on what was inside them. So we had some mixtures that were stable on the benchtop up to a year, and we didn't see any degradation. We took some of the capsules that had water-sensitive reagents in them, and we, we submersed them in water for 24 hours, we can then remove them and dry them off with a paper towel and then run the reaction with them. And we didn't see any decrease in yield. So they seemed quite stable.
4: Now, obviously, for this to be of any use to chemists, someone's going to need to produce these catalysts on mass, and presumably in lots of different sizes and different kinds and stuff. Do you have any sense of the commercial interest in this? And do you think it's going to be rolled out anytime soon?
1: Um, yeah, we'd like it to be rolled out soon. We've been talking with Merck and with Sigma Aldrich about getting that going. And uh, we're still working on that.
4: If these capsules did get rolled out on a kind of large scale, and then doing some of these reactions became more feasible just on the bench top, I mean, do you see this having an impact on high school and, and, and undergraduate chemistry labs? Do you, th- do you think you're gonna? Do you think the syllabus is gonna get a bit more fun?
1: Oh, I think it would absolutely. You're hitting the nail on the head, I guess, so to say. In a high school lab or a general chemistry lab or organic chemistry lab, you don't have access to glove boxes at all. And um, a lot of the times you're doing, you know, maybe interesting transformations, but if you can do some other types of things uh, on the bench top, I think it would be a lot more exciting.
2: That was Aaron Sather of MIT. And before him, Jeff visited Daniel Scott and his glove box at Imperial College London. Coming up in the news chat, scientists obliged to make their inboxes public by GM activists. And correcting a 400 year old record of sun activity. But first, it's time for the research highlights with Noah Baker.
6: Imagine getting headbutted by a frog and then finding out it was venomous too. That's what happened to one researcher collecting tree frogs in Brazil. He had the frog in his hand when it started to headbutt him. The unfortunate scientist suffered intense pain in his arm for several hours. It turns out that this species is one of the two that have sharp spines on their heads to inject predators with venom. The venom is more deadly than a pit vipers. For more details on these angry little amphibians, check out Current Biology. Nepal may be hit by yet another big earthquake, according to a new study. In April this year, the country was devastated by a magnitude 7.8 earthquake and an intense aftershock two weeks later. Seismic and satellite data has now shown that the earthquake didn't relieve all the geological stress in the area. In fact, it shifted seismic stress into neighbouring areas. If this were released in future, it would have the potential to cause another catastrophic quake. You can find the full paper over at Nature Geoscience.
0: So time now for our weekly news chat and Lauren Morello joins us all the way from Washington DC. Hi Lauren. Hi Adam. So the first story this week I'd like to talk about is a story regarding sunspots. There's been a correction of this really long-running scientific record, hasn't there?
3: People have been measuring sunspots since 1610, since right after the telescope was um, invented and the record of sunspot activity is the, uh, the longest observational record in science.
0: And what has enabled scientists to correct this record at this point?
3: A lot of painstaking work. Um, So there are multiple records of sunspot observations that kind of get combined into this one long cumulative record. But the problem is that in some cases, different data sets didn't agree. So a team of folks sat down with two of the most important lists and just really combed through them and went back and looked at the logbooks for tiny systemic sources of error that could be throwing the measurements off. And in one case, um, one of the errors they identified and compensated for was an observer in Switzerland whose eyesight started declining, and that affected that that person's observations.
0: It's really impressive the kind of the small mistakes they were able to find by going through these data sets with a fine-tooth comb, does that give us any actual new physical insight into what the sun's been doing over the last couple of hundred years?
3: So one thing that they've found is that there had been a thought that there was this grand maximum of sunspot activity in the second half of the 20th century, and since they've corrected the record, um, that maximum has disappeared. And the funny thing is that the Correction was um, a correction in data that was collected around the time that the Zorich Observatory, where one major sunspot record is based, changed directors. So a personnel change back in 1893 threw off the sunspot record enough to suggest a grand maximum in the 20th century.
0: This seems, for want of a better word, maybe almost a bit embarrassing that these personnel changes or someone losing their eyesight could have led us to think the sun was reaching a grand maximum when really it was just bumbling along
3: you could say this is embarrassing but you could also say this record is four centuries old and you're going to accumulate error along the way i mean this is the great thing about science right people are continually trying to get better evidence and improve their understanding and you know here it kind of worked the way that it's supposed to
0: Another group this week has been trying to seek evidence but of a very different sort. There's been an activist group which has filed FOI requests for 40 professors' correspondence. What are they hoping to find out from these professors?
3: Um, So this group, U.S. Right to Know, which is based in California, um, opposes genetically modified organisms. They argue that we don't know that genetically modified organisms are safe so what they're looking for in these freedom of information requests is evidence of collusion between biotechnology companies and researchers. Who are
0: they targeting specifically? 40 professors is quite a big number.
3: They are looking mainly at scientists who do research related to genetically modified organisms. And they're also looking at some economists and communications professors that have dipped their toes into the debate over GMOs.
0: And what have they found so far? Is there actually any evidence of any clear-cut misconduct?
3: The University of Florida turned over um, emails and other records from one of its researchers. Those are the only fruits of this Freedom of Information campaign that have been made public. And those emails reveal that this researcher had a close working relationship with Monsanto, um, a big biotech company that's heavily invested in GM crops.
0: Is there anything to imply that this relationship is a case of misconduct?
3: There's nothing in the emails that suggests scientific misconduct or wrongdoing on the part of the scientist. But there are things in the documents that I think are enough to kind of raise some eyebrows and get people talking about what relationships should be disclosed between academics and industry. For example, this scientist Kevin Fulta contributed to a site called GMO Answers, that's aimed at consumers. It's funded by the biotech industry. um, And scientists answer questions that people send in about genetically modified organisms. So here, um, some of the emails show that the PR company that runs the website um, sometimes suggested answers for this guy to post with his name on them. Now, he says that nobody ever told him what to say. Uh, The emails also show that The scientist also got a $25,000 unrestricted grant from Monsanto. You know, there's no sign that he's not disclosed things, that legally he was required to disclose. But this is the kind of thing that I think people rightly argue could be viewed by some as a a conflict. And I think in science, the kind of standard that's emerged is if there is an appearance of a conflict, even if you don't feel there is an actual conflict, you should disclose it. And I mean, it works much the same in journalism.
0: Now, freedom of information requests are something that's quite common in the climate field. What similarities are there between these freedom of information requests regarding genetic modification and those that we've seen previously regarding climate and climate change?
3: You know, anecdotally, it does seem like freedom of information laws are increasingly being used to go after individual scientists' communications you know, frankly, if you're a scientist that works at a public institution, you should be prepared for this. But I think with climate change, we've seen requests that are maybe much broader. Um, You know, for example, um, Michael Mann, a climate researcher who's played a key role in putting together this famous climate graph called the hockey stick. And in that case, they were searching for his records going back 30 years, which um, I think a lot of people reasonably argued was a strangely broad request. Here, this is a more focused request. And I believe that they've really been zeroing in on um, looking for evidence of funding. And you know, traditionally, uh, funding from industry is something that we like our scientists to disclose.
0: One way to kind of gauge how controversial a topic still is, is to see when you have a new story like this, how the response is on social media. When Nature News posted this story about the GM Freedom of Information request, what what was the response like?
3: The response was pretty hot and heavy. I think people are passionate and polarized about GM technology, especially GM crops, I think. You know, in the public mind, there's concern about safety and we saw that kind of public debate reflected in the response to our story on Twitter and in a particularly active comment thread on the website.
0: Great. Thanks for speaking with us, Lauren. More always at nature.com forward slash news.
2: Are you listening to us on your summer vacation? Catching up with the archive, perhaps? Why not send us a picture or a message or even an email postcard? We'd love to know where in the world you're listening. We're back next week with a regular-sized
0: show. In the meantime, though, there's tons to catch up with on our YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash nature video channel. New this week, what the octopus genome reveals about these bizarre brainy beauties.
2: And there's a film about an expedition to the jungles of Borneo that set out to sample the DNA of an entire mountain. I'm Kerry Smith.
0: And I'm Adam Levy.